This podcast is brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. BankInfoSecurity.com is your source for the news and views shaping security and risk management within the finance space. The globalization of payments, the emergence of mobile and peer-to-peer payments, and more services such as prepaid that aim to target the underbanked are changing the financial services landscape by opening doors for more competition from emerging payments providers. And that means more opportunity for fraud, as new dimensions to enhance options also create unknown vulnerabilities. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. Today we hear from Costa Peric, head of innovation for SWIFT, the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, who shares his thoughts about new security risks, the use of mobile technology to reach the unbanked, and the need for a more secure global payments infrastructure. Costa, you head up SWIFT's Intertribe division, the Bank Innovation Division of SWIFT. Can you tell us a bit about Intertribe and some of the new payment services it is reviewing? Intertribe is SWIFT's initiative to foster and enable collaborative innovation in the financial industry. And my team, the innovation team at SWIFT, is behind this initiative. What we do is two things, essentially. Uh, the first one is idea generation in the industry through events such as Intertribe at Cybos. And so that's idea generation. And the second is to be able to um, act upon some ideas and so run an incubator, so an environment where uh, some of the ideas generated can be, in fact, implemented. Just to give you an idea to answer your question, so some of the things we have in the incubator right now are projects related to digital identity, digital asset management, better management of market practices in payments, um, enhanced and secure ways to associate more data with payments. We are also active on the securities side of uh, our business uh, with th- things such as XBRL and corporate actions. And some other things we are looking at are uh, work remittances and more generally mobile payments. Now, Costa, the development of the globally connected economy is inspiring leaders and governments to redefine the ways we address intangible assets as well as long-term debt. The primary question, however, is, is the money the only form of value that can exist in a transaction? What are your thoughts about this discussion? To answer your question, no, money is not the only form of value uh, as we uh, move forward. And I think value will be represented in many ways driven by the what's called the digitizing of our world or the pervasive technology. So there are already today and there will be more alternative currencies. And let, let me give you some examples. Corporate currencies such as things we know well like uh, frequent flyer miles, virtual currencies such as Facebook credits that were Facebook recently launched, social uh, value-based currencies such as Bitcoin and then all of these things are today limited to niche communities, but many of these are targeting expansion. Now, can you talk with us a bit about new economies like the trust economy, the intention economy, and the relationship economy, as well as the social economy and the ethical economy? What impacts are these so-called economies having on the global financial infrastructure? Uh, I'm really glad you asked this question because this this subjects will be one of the highlights of the upcoming InnoTribe of Cybos event in Toronto, at Cybos Toronto. So all of these things that you mentioned, these economies, are, are essentially linked together and are driven by the emergence of social networks and data, themselves driven by the technology and Internet. 
So these economies have to do essentially with changing the meaning of the word consumer. Uh, and the change is that this consumer will change from this essentially passive participant to the economy today to a keystone and a new way to do business. Let me explain. Uh, relationships will be based on trust. And this trust will be built upon your digital reputation, which is something very valuable and visible. Let me give you an example that many people know. Uh, if you use eBay, on eBay, you as a buyer or as a seller have built a reputation that is given uh, uh, by other people that you deal with. And this reputation is very precious because if you have good reputation, well, people will want to do business with you. If, uh, if, if I talk a little bit about the intent economy, um, if an intent of this new consumer is well known and trusted through reputation, then slowly but surely the economy will start revolving around this intent. So for example, rather than me today as a consumer going to, you know, and shopping through various uh, websites and merchants to find something that, uh, that I want, rather than that, in the future, I will be able to say, well, this is what I want, and my intent is trusted, so my, my intent is committed, so, and then many people can, can actually bid for my business. So, so now, all this technology and, and this new concept will be really revolving around this new consumer. So the consumer will be in the driving seat, and then that will drive some interesting things, such as uh, transparency, and um, and new data and characteristics that will be made available to those consumers. So, for example, say I want to deal with a company, well, or to put my money in a certain bank. Well, these new consumers will be will want to know what sort of business the bank invests money in. So, for example, I would like to put money only in a bank that does uh, invest in green uh, business. So these notions of more transparency and community involved from all parties. That's very interesting, Costa, and I, I was going to shift gears here a moment and, and talk a bit about chip and pin, but perhaps you could help me understand how some of the movement that's taking place, I guess, in the regular economy um, from a payments perspective might fit in with some of these new economies. We've been talking quite a bit lately about chip and pin technology. Can you tell us where and how SWIFT comes down on the chip and pin debate for the United States? And might it fit into this new scope when it comes to some of these different economies that you're talking about? Yeah, so it's interesting. And uh, as a person, I know that, uh, and as a consumer, I know that there is quite a different approach in the U.S. and in Europe uh, towards this. I know that uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, banks tend to privilege convenience. Uh, while in Europe, uh, the, the banks tend to privilege more uh, hardware-based security uh, for online business. Um, we at Swift, in fact, have come up uh, re, uh, in, in the last year, we have come up with a new product that we call uh, 3SK, and that is targeted to uh, corporates who have been admitted to the Swift networks in three years, so essentially the clients of the banks. And so we have come out with this product um, called 3SK that is based on a hardware security token, namely a USB token that implements our PKI infrastructure. 
And that token is focused on authenticating some people within these companies, typically the CFO uh, or the, the, the person who has the power to, of, of attorney for the payments. And so it, by doing that, what we have achieved is to provide a single window uh, to the banks for the CFO so that there is a single mechanism to authenticate uh, this person toward multiple banks. So we think we have there the best of the both, both worlds. So we have convenience in this product so that the, this person has only one authentication item to all the banks that uh, they deal with, but at the same time has strong security based on uh, hardware. And now going back to talk about some of these efforts to reach the underbanked, and then this may even tie in with some of the economies that we've been talking about, would a move mm -hmm. to mobile chip and pin enhance options or services for the underbank? And if it would, how? Uh, well, I think uh, the first problem for the underbanked in the underbanked space is first to get these massive amounts of people banked uh, <laughs> in the first place. And just to give the size of the problem, like in India, uh, I think the numbers are that uh, there is about 1.2 billion people. Uh, of which only a third, I think, uh, have um, have a bank account. Now, the interesting point indeed is that most people, including in India, are equipped with a mobile phone, for example. And so I would say that the issue of unbanked is a very large issue, and the mobile chip pin is part of that puzzle, but it's certainly not the solution. Uh, to get people banked, there is a need for easy and widespread, uh, uh, you know, ways to identify, authenticate people, the KYC process. And if you look, there is currently, uh, I think uh, it's being developed in India, a government initiative for, uh, on, on this. It's quite a, quite a major endeavor. To answer your question, I would say, yes, it's a contributing factor, but it's certainly not uh, the, the only one. And when we talk about the underbanked, rightly or wrongly, we often tie prepaid services to services that would reach the underbanked or the unbanked. Why are prepaid services that are aimed at this group getting so much attention right now? Well, it, it has to do, I think, with some of the first projects uh, that have been done, uh, mostly by mobile network operators like Mbeza in Kenya, which is quite a, quite a nice uh, you know, countrywide success, and it's been driven mostly by the mobile network operator in, in Kenya, and that was kind of the most natural way because it's quite easy, it's quite easy to implement. Now, uh, there are some other initiatives of that nature in some other countries. If you look at the picture globally, though, uh, I'm not sure that this is, this is the that this convenience will trump, you know, in the end, the need for a reliable, a reliable global banking system. And what are some of the fraud and security concerns when it comes to some of these new and emerging services that aim to enhance payments options, especially when we talk about prepaid options? Uh, well, it, there are several issues that need to be uh, tackled. The first one is that if you if you look at just the prepaid systems, well, they are happening essentially outside of the banking system, and therefore essentially outside of the controls and regulations of the banking system. 
that have to do with uh, you know all sorts of regulations pertaining to uh, money laundering, uh, terrorist funding, and uh, all these other issues. And so the so that's that's an issue in itself. I think the second thing that we notice is that, that at least I heard is that uh, the mobile network operators who have implemented prepaid systems are now in a situation of uh, being realizing that they need to comply with all these regulations and so now are you know looking to see how they can do that and perhaps how to partner with banks so so I think um, uh, I think some maturity is you know these, you can look at these things as very fast uh, pilot projects but now I think there is some uh, deeper thinking or some perhaps more structural thinking about how to go forward about this. And that's a great segue to my next question, which was how concerned should financial institutions be about the risks that are posed by some of these non-traditional financial players that have dominated this space? And as we enter the prepaid and peer-to-peer payment space, what role should financial institutions be playing? I see this as a major opportunity for banks. Uh, moving forward, because if if we related a little bit earlier to our talk about new economies, moving forward, in fact, what we notice is that banks and and the whole economies will be based not necessarily on money but on data. That, uh, you know, I mentioned all these different virtual currencies and so on. So it has to do all with data, and I think there is a major opportunity for banks to to establish themselves in this new space, which is the digital asset management, uh, so management really of data elements that pertain to the identity and value of these new economies. So, so I would say that there is uh, this major opportunity, and some banks have seen it, uh, and I think there is major opportunity for collaboration, because on the other hand, uh, many of these things are like highways, so not uh, n- never can a single company have the power to build highways. There will be the need for collaboration to establish so common infrastructures to to tackle these new markets while at the same time complying with complying with the current regulations and rules. So there is a major opportunity ahead. Uh, that that would be my comment. Um, and as usual, uh, you know, if, if the banking industry doesn't move, well, some other people will move indeed. I think there is a major opportunity for new products and services pertaining to these new economies that we mentioned. Now, when it comes to some of these new value payments and then when we look at some of these emerging payments that are coming out when it comes to peer-to-peer payments, especially when they're on the mobile device, money laundering and fraud are, of course, a big concern. Um, We've talked a lot about authentication. What steps is the industry taking to address some of these money laundering worries? Yes, some of these things like digital identity and interoperability, interoperable, um, you know, identification and authentication systems will help. There are some other initiatives that uh, that are that are taking place uh, in the sanctions screening uh, type of things where it's very interesting. It's again, you know, a collaborative effort of the banks or some of the banks to basically centralize or share a common infrastructure for sanction testing because everybody you know we notice there are so many things in banks 
and in particular related to uh, anti-money laundering and sanctions testing, where every bank ends up implementing their own systems to essentially do the same thing. And we have come to the realization that uh, that this can be shared, that this could be a shared infrastructure. That's something that we SWIFT are putting together um, as a project as well to uh, be able to contribute to, to this effort. And then finally, Costa, before we close, what final thoughts would you like to leave our audience with as it relates to some of these new value payments or new economies or fraud and prevention generally? I will leave you with this. So. These things are happening, and uh, we hope that there will not be elephants in the room <laughs> unnoticed, but we will notice them. There is major opportunities there. I think also that um, that we need to be looking also at the new challenges that are brought by these digital economies uh, and the increasing digitization. And, uh, you know, we at SWIFT have been active for uh, more than 30 years in security and reliability. We have a private, secure, worldwide IP network, for example, that that, uh, I think will be, or at least we need to think how these assets of the financial community can be leveraged as well as we go forward, these uh, increasingly digital uh, economies and these new economies. Costa, I'd like to thank you again for your time today. You're very welcome. Again, we've just heard from Costa Peric, who heads Bank Innovations for SWIFT. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten. This podcast has been brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.BankInfoSecurity.com.